Can it be repaired? What's wrong with it? I don't know. I got to go take it in. It won't turn on. When I turn on, it has this like scary folder with a question mark. It like can't find my hard drive or something. I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Wow. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not great. It doesn't seem good. I'm going to take it to the Apple. I'm going to take it to the Apple store, but my car is also broken right now. So <laughs> I have to like borrow, Jesus. I have to borrow someone's car to take my broken computer in. Is Mercury in retrograde? Uh, What's I'm- going on? This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans City Council approved the 2023 budget with a surprise addition of over $100 million in federal aid. And the city is forced to rehire its longtime utility consultants after an ultimately futile year-long attempt to attract competitors. A federal judge declined a request from the sheriff's office for all parties operating under the consent decree to sign non-disclosure agreements to protect the integrity of confidential information. The Army Corps of Engineers has deferred the review of a permit for clay excavation that Greenfield, Louisiana, LLC, the company hoping to build a large grain elevator project in St. John the Baptist Parish, applied for. And in a letter to that parish's tax assessor, a nonprofit is challenging a deal Greenfield entered into that would allow the company to avoid paying around $200 million in property taxes. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn and environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. So, Michael, just when we thought you were out of the budget woods, you were still in it this week. They finally approved 2023 budget, but there was a surprise addition to the operating budget at the last minute. They added in a bunch of federal money. What happened there? Yeah, it, um, you know, in some ways it, it, it went as expected, but there was a big surprise there. And um, Nick was also at the meeting and had a front row seat to my utter confusion at the time um, that we eventually figured <laughs> out. But, um, you know, basically, you know, what, what we saw was, you know, at the beginning of this budget process, when the budget was first rolled out, uh, the Cantrell administration basically said, we're dealing with two big you know, pots of money here. We're dealing with, you know, the passage of the annual budget, you know, about $1.5 billion of our operating budget. And then we also have to pass, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in one-time money. And this, you know, this one-time money, this big pot of money really comes from two sources. The first is coronavirus relief money that hasn't been spent yet. And the second is fund balance money. And this is basically money from previous year budgets that was never spent. Um, You know, we've racked up a lot of money, um, you know, in recent years, mainly because it's been difficult to hire um, for all the budgeted Mm. positions in the city. Um, But when this process was rolled out, you know, what we were told is that, you know, the first thing was that the council was going to deal with the operating budget. And then we were going to move on to a separate process where we really got into the details of how we were going to use all of this one time money. Um, so, you know, we've spent the last month in these budget hearings and, you know, I've, I've been at almost every single one, watched almost every minute of it. And, you know, all the discussion was around the operating budget, not really around what we were going to do with this one time money. Um, but when we arrived on December 1st um, to the, the meeting where the budget was passed, 
um, there was an amendment uh, to the operating budget that added $262 million in one-time spending to the operating budget. Mm. Um, again, this is something that we thought were was going to be dealt with separately. And, you know, we're talking about a really, you know, wide range of, of, of expenses here. I mean, some of these things have been, you know, discussed at length in public. So one of the big spending items here is a big incentive package for the NOPD um, to help recruit and retain officers. This is something that the administration has talked about publicly. It's been in the news um, but there are a lot of smaller things here, you know, that just really never received scrutiny, especially, mm -hmm. you know, given the fact that we have been in budget hearings for a month, you know, there are things um, like a $5 million for a staff member and consulting team um, for a new uh, a homeless program. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about uh, $2 million to expand um, patrols by the new grounds patrol division, which is kind of the security patrol within the city's Office of Homeland Security. We're talking about $5.8 million um, just to administrate all of these expenses and, and to, to, you know, pay for the administration of how this money is spent. Um, you know, again, you know, things that did not really get this type of public debate um, and, and weren't you know, the, the press, at least, or the public didn't really have the chance to scrutinize before it was voted on. Um, and, and you know, again, this kind of was brought up, uh, was was kind of passed with very little discussion. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how it went. But again, that, that was a, a surprise to me at the time that um, this one-time money, they folded into, you know, mm. kind of this single vote on the operating budget. Right. A little like Oprah's year end. I don't know. You guys not probably never ever saw this, but it's become a meme of sorts. You get a car and you get a car and you get a car, just like spreading the money around. You know, I will say that, you know, an interesting thing here is that, you know, every budget season, especially under Cantrell, um, you know, it, it, a constant theme has been, you know, we really shouldn't be using one-time funds for recurring expenses because, you know, next year we're going to want that same thing and, and we won't have a way to pay for it because that one-time money will be gone. And I am noticing, you know, several items in here um, that seem to be recurring expenses rather than one-time expenses. Um, and I didn't really get a full explanation as to kind of how that's going to be handled. Um, the administration, an administration official told me that some of these items uh, is really laying out funding for the next three years mm. instead of just for the next year. Although, again, that still leaves us three years down the road. We're going to have to fill that gap. So, right. um, you know, I think that with this spending, there's still, you know, questions to be answered um, that we're still going to be looking at. Because, again, this is all fairly new. In particular, I was going to ask you about recurring expenses that it sounds like they might have tied some of this money to, as you said, uh, recruiting and retaining at in the NOPD that I mean, recruitment may be signing bonuses and things, but but retaining it would that sounds like a recurring expense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when it comes to the NOPD package, there was some skepticism among the council members that, you know, this is what is going to actually work. I mean, Nick, I don't know if you Nick, Nick would kind of knows this issue better than I do, but um, there was definitely some skepticism about whether this retention package is going to work in the long term. Um, yeah, the the council and particularly J.P. Morrell and Elena Moreno have raised concerns that these one-time bonuses really, really what the NOPD should be looking at is 
yearly cost of living adjustments, regular raises, and that that's what officers really want as opposed to these one-time expenses. Um, and, you know, originally Cantrell had proposed that they were going to start paying healthcare premiums for NOPD officers using this one-time funding. And the council actually cut that portion of the incentive package for, for precisely that reason, because they said these are recurring expenses and we don't want to, you know, start providing this. And then in a few years, realize we don't have the, the money to, to keep doing it. Um, so there was some, some talk of that. And I think, yeah, the council really w is skeptical of, of this package. And I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on it within the next six months. And they basically said, you know, if this isn't working, we're pulling the money from it and we're not going to keep, you know, using these bonuses if, if they're not actually producing the results um, of, of hiring, you know, several hundred more officers in the next, you know, five or five or so years. Okay. But, you know, the, the other thing I'll note on this budget, you know, I've covered a bunch of budgets now. Um, and, and this this one is unique in that, you know, it's probably of any annual budget process I've seen, you know, it's probably the least reflective of what we'll actually spend over the next year. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, you know, the idea with this budget, you know, if you look at it on the surface, what you'll see is like a lot of big budget cuts. Um, but those may not actually materialize. Basically, you know, again, we talked about at the beginning, a lot of departments are having trouble hiring. Um, and basically what they've done in this budget is said, you know, we're not going to fund you. Uh, we're not going to fund a department at, at your historic level just because that's how you've been funded. We're going to fund you for how many people you've actually been able to hire, um, you know, how many people are actually working in your office. Now, at the same time, they've told a lot of departments that, you know, just because their budgeted positions have been reduced, that shouldn't stop them from going out and hiring um, but again, you know, this, this is going to bring up if departments do hire at a speed that's greater than the administration, you know, expects, uh, you know, I'm not really sure where the money is going to come from. Right. Um, you know, I, I, this year they're planning to have kind of these quarterly budget hearings, you know, usually we do this once a year. Um, now we're going to be doing it, you know, four times a year, um, where, you know, every quarter we're going to have a check-in on, you know, where is department spending actually, at this time. And so, you know, we're going to see, you know, Gilbert Montano, the city's chief administrative officer, you know, he's basically pitched this as this is budgeting of the future that, you know, this is how cities are going to do it and how cities are going to kind of follow, you know, New Orleans lead on this. Again, hopefully that that is how it works out. I But obviously when there are costs that aren't exactly accounted for in the budget, you know, it obviously raises the specter that you could find yourself in a hole. Um, so it, it's another thing to keep your eye on. So again, we're, you know, in, in the words of the administration, this is a very quote unquote agile budget. Um, so it's, it's, you know, again, something to keep your eye on. All right. And other city news this week, despite a robust attempt to solicit other bids for the job overseeing the city, city utility operations, the New Orleans City Council is again rehiring firms that have been doing the job for decades. So what's going on with that? Yeah, I'll be quick with this, but th this is really the continuation of reporting. Um, you know, we started, you know, about four years ago. In 2019, we, we put out a report um, about how, you know, this the city council, unlike many city councils, you know, has the power and the responsibility of regulating the local power company, Entergy New Orleans. 
Um, but when we wrote about this in 2019, you know, we pointed out that that the city council had effectively, you know, outsourced that entire responsibility to this small group of consultants um, that had held the job for, you know, decades. We're talking about 30 years. The same group of people um, have essentially been in full control of how the city council regulates energy. And, you know, more than that, we had written about how these consultants have used political contributions, political connections to kind of ensure that they kept these contracts. Um, and, you know, after that reporting, the, the city council kind of began this process to, you know, move away from the consultants and start building in-house capacity. And, and to a certain extent, you know, they, they've been able to do that. You know, the the city's, um, the, the council utilities regulatory office, you know, uh, it used to have one employee. Um, it now has seven budgeted positions. They're hoping to get that up to 10 this year. Um, but it's still, you know, it's not big enough. You're still going to need some outside help. I mean, regulating a utility is a big job that requires a lot of, you know, expertise. Earlier this year, you know, the council once again signed contracts with this same, with the same consultants, again, that have been on the job for decades. Um, and Councilman J.P. Morrell basically said, you know, this is just a stopgap measure. Um, we're going to initiate this really broad search so that we can kind of diversify the consultants we used. Another criticism of our system is that, you know, a lot of utility regulators, they use consultants, but uh, they'll use consultants for specific projects. You know, if they have one important docket they need help on, they will sign a contract to get help on that docket. Our contracts are generalized to where these consultants basically do everything. Um, and, and so basically what, what Councilman Morell wanted to do was get a big roster of potential consultants. Mm. And then as projects come up, you can kind of go to that roster and say, hey, they'd be good for that. Or no, maybe we should use these people for this, you know, project. But we weren't getting a lot of responses right. when, when the city council put out, you know, public bids. So the council went out, out and put, instead of just putting out a public bid for consultants, they put out a public bid for a recruitment firm to help them go out and attract consultants. You know, part of the the reason why, you know, people suspected not many people applied to the job is that, again, these consultants have held it for so long. Yep, had an um, inside track. Companies maybe assume, yeah, you know, what's the point? These guys have gotten it for 30 years. What chance do I have? Yeah. Um, you know, and we've seen firms in the past that have, you know, kind of put in bids for this, make complaints after saying, we don't understand why we were rejected. You know, our proposal was genuinely better and cheaper and all these things. But unfortunately, even the public bid to find this recruitment firm, um, no one bid on that. Mm. So the council was in, unable to even find uh, and hire a recruitment firm. So without a recruitment firm, the city council once again put out a public bid for consultants without any help. Um, and once again, they didn't get any other bids except for the consultants that have been there forever. So I, I think that the council, you know, even from harsh critics of Energy and the consultants, you know, really gave the council credit for they, they tried to go out there and diversify the consultant pool um, and it just didn't work. Yeah. Um, and I think that now the focus is going to turn, you know, instead of diverse, diversifying the consultants, uh, the, the, the efforts are really just going to turn back to building up that in-house capacity, which I think is like broadly agreed is a best practice and it's just going to be turned into better public policy. But um yeah, you know, I think there was some disappointment among the council and, and, you know, certain advocates, but it's the way it panned out. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. 
criminal justice reporter Nick Krestel, and environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, I'm Mara Jusen, editor of The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. Our reporters work tirelessly to provide public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. And now, through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your new monthly donation 12 times or double your one-time gift, all up to $1,000 per individual, making your gift even more important. Please give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you and happy holidays. Nick, earlier today, which we're talking on Wednesday, a federal judge shot down a proposal by Orleans Parish Sheriff Susan Hudson that the other parties in the New Orleans jail, New Orleans jail's long-running consent decree sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, to protect the information that the sheriff's office is required to share with them as part of the ongoing litigation meant to bring the jail up to constitutional standards. So what were they seeking? I guess give us some background on the federal consent decree, just a brief, brief background, and also what were they seeking with these NDAs? Sure. So the federal consent decree is this long-running agreement between the United States Department of Justice, uh, civil rights attorneys representing people incarcerated at the New Orleans jail, um, and the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office that's intended to bring the conditions of the jail up to constitutional standards. Um, historically, the jail has had bad violence, really horrific conditions inside. Um, and this consent decree stemmed from a civil rights lawsuit that was filed against them. And as part of the consent decree, these civil rights attorneys and the Department of Justice have access to a wide range of information and records um, related to the jail. And they you know, get to look at staffing plans and use of force reports and disciplinary reports and basically have access to to lots and lots of jail systems and data. Since Sheriff Susan Hudson took office, there have been some issues raised by the different parties related to the sharing of this, this information. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, on the podcast some about, about criticisms of Susan Hudson's office related to transparency. Yeah. And the federal judge has uh, indicated as well that he's, he's been frustrated um, with the office's either unwillingness or inability to quickly share information about what's going on at the jail and give periodic updates regarding investigations into incidents. You know, over the summer, there was two deaths in the jail in quick succession over a weekend. Uh, um, and then there was a, a protest that uh, required a planned use of force by both um, sheriff's office deputies and, and uh, Louisiana Department of Corrections officers that, to retake a pod. That was the hunger strike, right, Nick? Yeah, it was a hunger strike. So what, what happened is they, they barricaded themselves in their housing pod right. um, and wouldn't allow any security to come in. And it lasted for several days. Yeah. That, that's kind of the background on this. And the federal judge ordered the sheriff's office to basically come up with a framework that would ensure that they were sharing information more quickly, that the court and the other parties were getting um, records and information on invest related to investigations in a timely manner. So one part of what the sheriff's office ultimately came up with 
was that they wanted the other parties in the consent decree to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which they said they thought was necessary to ensure the integrity of, of you know, some of the confidential information that, that these parties had access to. Hmm. So that's that's sort of how how this suggestion came up in the first place. And the judge struck that down? So civil rights attorneys and, and the Department of Justice pretty much immediately said, you know, we don't, we're not going to do this. We don't think that this is necessary. We've been in this litigation for, you know, around a decade. And, you know, there's no issue here. There hasn't been any instances of us giving away confidential information. There are already, you know, mechanisms in place in the consent decree that ensure that we we won't do this. I'm sort of reading between the lines here, but yeah. I think from their perspective, it was like the judge, the judge said, go find ways to become, to be more transparent. And the sheriff's office came back and said, you know, we need everyone to sign an NDA. Um, I think every, they, they were a little taken aback by that suggestion that, that, you know, it was somehow incumbent upon them to sign this before information was going to be shared with them. Hmm. So that, that was all leading up to this hearing today. And the judge basically said, this is not necessary at all. And we've been, we've been in this litigation for years and, you know, suggested that it was presumptuous of the, the sheriff to kind of come in and, and re, he, he said, rewrite the rules to the litigation sort of. So it does not look like the, the, there will be any NDA moving forward. The sheriff's office had suggested a draft proposal for the NDA and had, had submitted this to the court. Mm-hmm. And in the, the language in the draft basically said that the sheriff was the only one who could decide what information was confidential and what wasn't. Um, so that the judge said, he said, that'll never happen, you know? And he said, he said he didn't even think it was, was necessarily legal. Your sense of this was, does it seem like it was you know, a genuine concern or more of a tactic? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, you know, a lawyer for the sheriff today said, look, we're trying to rethink this whole thing. You know, we're coming into this office and thinking about ways to do things differently and thinking about concerns that, that, you know, other parties and other people we work with might have about all this data and data being shared. And, you know, this is a huge amount of information and we just want to be, you know, we're, we're just kind of covering our bases here. I think that that there's, there's something to be said for that. Um, You know, I think that, the context of how it was presented to the court and presented to the other parties, um, I think was, uh, it, it rubbed, rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard to say. I mean, it, another portion of this hearing was the attorneys for the plaintiffs had asked the judge to basically order the sheriff's office to turn over some records that they hadn't gotten yet that they had asked for, um, but have not received. And it, it sounds like that there are, you know, some technical reasons why maybe the attorneys would, didn't have access to these, to these records there. A data sharing platform wasn't allowing them to download certain ones, but it's kind of an open question whether or not these things are a product of the sheriff's office, um, unwillingness to provide the records or, sort of, uh, you know, technical issues and capacity issues in the office 
with them not being able to to kind of provide them in a timely manner. Mm. And I will say that the the judge seemed to at least indicate that that he thought the sheriff's office was willing to turn over these records, but but just needed to kind of get the procedures and mechanisms in place to do it. Okay. And at the hearing, did the sheriff's office and the representatives for the sheriff's office seem to just take this in stride? Yeah, what they said, I mean, what the judge ultimately ordered was the, the parties to sort of sit down and, and hash it out, which the sheriff's office definitely seemed open to. There was not much pushback on the non-disclosure agreement aspect. Um, and I doubt that, that we'll see that brought up by the sheriff's office again, mm-hmm. um, although, you know, I could I could be proven wrong. So we'll see. Okay. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Joshua, we've got Greenfield in the news in a couple stories with you this week. We recently learned that Greenfield entered into a contract with a company to excavate and remove millions of tons of clay, which they plan to use for a levy project directed by the Army Corps, even as the Corps is reviewing Greenfield's grain elevator project. The Corps, however, deferred reviewing this project, citing potential overlap between the two projects. So let's talk about this one first. They applied for a permit... And the Army Corps of Engineers has said, we can't rule on this permit yet because we've got this other one first sitting in front of us. Tell us about that. That's exactly right. So um, the Army Corps of Engineers is currently engaged in this review of Greenfield's proposed grain elevator project, which has been the focus of, of, of our coverage here at The Lens as regards Greenfield. It's it's this you know proposed... Uh, very large uh, project, you know, 54 silos, railroad infrastructure, a, a dock, you know, access to the river. Um, and and the Army Corps is engaged in this review under the uh, National Historic Preservation Act section. It's called the Section 106 review, uh, which, which involves um, considering the potential impact a project might have on "Quote unquote cultural cultural resources," you know. There there have been concerns raised that this project would, you know, potentially impact adversely, perhaps irreparably harm some of some uh, unmarked graves that that might be present on uh, the the land there. It's the site of a former uh, plantation. So that that has been, like I said, the the sole focus of our coverage here. And it's a fairly complex issue to report on. There, there are different regulators at the state and federal level. There are a couple different court cases going on. So, you know, there's there, there's enough there to stay busy. But then we just recently learned that there's this whole other uh, project that Greenfield is interested in pursuing, involving the same exact uh, tract of land that you know, is is kind of brand new information to, to people who've been covering this. Um, and, and and this this new project that Greenfield entered into a contract uh, for back in October would be to um, engage with a local company to excavate and remove all of this clay, all this dirt essentially from the same tract of land and, and you know, the idea would be to to use that for this uh, very ambitious levy project that the Army Corps of Engineers is uh, in charge of in 
the river parishes on on happens to be on the east bank. Uh, the the greenfield site would would be on the west bank. This uh, levee project, the uh, West Shore Lake Pontchartrain uh, levee project, has been in the works for years. It, it, it would cost uh, 1.2 billion dollars, and um, you know, all of a sudden, Greenfield is is trying to apparently get involved in this, and they would benefit, uh, you know, somewhat handsomely potentially from this clay excavation project, uh, perhaps to the tune of 24 million dollars. And, you know, there there have been these multiple, I, I think there have been two so far meetings of uh, Greenfield and, and the Army Corps and the groups that are concerned with the project under the 106 uh, purview. And somehow Greenfield had, you know, failed to mention that. <laughs> the Corps also didn't mention it. Um, so it just kind of opens up this whole new dimension, really, you know, and, and it's... Um, it's kind of fascinating, frankly. Can I try to just simplify and summarize here that 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 they want to do with this big project for the grain elevator? I, I guess you can imagine that in in that project itself, they're going to be removing a lot of earth, and that earth or clay will, is now hey somebody wants to use it for a levy project, a different company, and so it kind of actually is a is a nice streamline or dovetail of two different things that are happening simultaneously. However, well, I guess, hang on, that, that the second part of that also is being directed by the Army Corps of Engineers, but Greenfield needs their approval to do that. It would seem to me that this would be kind of a rubber stamp issue. I think it's interesting that it's happened and it suddenly it's come to light, but, but wouldn't the Army Corps of Engineers want that to be expedited? Because if they're directing that levy project in the first place, wouldn't they want to push it through as quickly as they could with due diligence, of course? So, sure. So I spoke with um, one of the spokespeople for the Army Corps, um, who, who I mentioned in, in the article. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm so fascinated in, in what the Army Corps' position on this whole thing is. I'm curious if there's like if this prevents some kind of conflict of interest or or as as you're um, suggesting, Carolyn, if they um, or I, I suppose it's, it's not even necessarily uh, a, a contrast uh, to what you were suggesting. You know, do they do they want this dirt? Do they need this dirt for their, you know, levy project? And, uh, you know, if so, is there some kind of inherent motivation mm. there to mm. to kind of you know make sure that this process goes a certain way or not you know that that's of course um not in in, in any way like assigning intentionality here whatsoever but i i was i was interested to hear from that spokesperson that uh yes they 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 had um first of all received this this permit application from greenfield second of all they're they're not doing anything with it, which I think is 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 especially relevant here. Uh, they're they're kind of like we we don't we don't even want to touch this right now. We we we're engaged in the Section One Hundred Six review mm -hmm. uh, process. Its own thing, its own track. We don't we don't even want to go near this clay excavation thing. Um, and 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 the other thing I think which is relevant is that the core has. Um, 
I don't know if this is exactly the most artful way to put it, but kind of like a Rolodex maybe of, of different, you know, contractors with whom they've, they've worked before different sites that they've already approved before yeah. uh, to act as these borrow pits. And for, if, if I understood him correctly, it sounds like they already have uh, a whole bunch of their own supply that I think, and you may not want to quote me on this, um, but I, I think it, it could be coming from the, the, the Bonnie Carey spillway. So it's, it's not as if they're in from, from the impression I got it was that they're not exactly in like this, you know, desperate uh, posture of like, they, they need this. We clay need and dirt. Gotta, <laughs> yeah, clay. Right. So I, I, I think that they have their options and, um, it's, I mean, based on that, it sounds like it would, it, it's, it's not like a fait accompli mm. that this specific contract for this specific clay would be like essentially marketable for this specific project necessarily. Mm. Okay. All right. And it would, it's what you're saying is speaks to probably what, what's going on because they have said, we're not, we're not going to look at this project right now. We're not reviewing this right now. Exactly. And if they're more desperate, you know, I, I think that maybe, you know, they would per, perhaps take a different position on it. Yeah. Okay. And a second story that involves Greenfield, the same company, is something that you're just reporting on today, Wednesday. A nonprofit organization is now challenging a deal that Greenfield entered into that would shield them from some $200 million in property taxes. They're arguing that Greenfield is using a mechanism by which they're they're claiming nonprofit status or tax exempt status here the the clay excavation contract raises some interesting questions about the issue of ownership and how how this transfer works and how how other companies have done this in the past i'm really curious about that tell us what's going on sure um so the organization that that, that uh you know, the, the, the letter was sent on the behalf of it is the Descendants Project, which is um, a, a group that we've reported on before. They're, they're a nonprofit uh, founded by the twin sisters, Joe and Joy Banner, and they're, they're engaged in um, uh, litigation challenging the, the Greenfield Project. They're in, in, in one set of litigation, they're challenging the underlying zoning ordinance that would allow for the construction to take place in the first place. Um, but this letter that their attorney sent, um, the, the law firm is Mosin Associates, which for in, in the interest of full disclosure, one, one of the lawyers who worked at that firm is uh, the partner of our interim editor, Marta Jusen. Yep. Um, so you know, that's that's a disclaimer in, in, in the article. I, I figured I'd mention it here, uh, yep. mention it here as well. Thank you. Um, but. Absolutely. Uh, so basically, this this group, uh, you know, and 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 their attorney in this letter, they're challenging this cooperative endeavor agreement that Greenfield entered into this spring with the Port of South Louisiana, which is an unelected uh, body that, nonetheless, you know, is is a uh, uh, you know technically political subdivision with something approaching legislative powers and and they're they're a tax exempt or they're a tax exempt entity so basically it's in essence um greenfield bought this property back in 2021 um they 
um, let's say, according to this document, this cooperative endeavor agreement sold that property to the port, which which is tax exempt, which which is you know which which doesn't pay property taxes, and then the port has leased that same property back, back to them to Greenfield. Exactly. So Greenfield is not paying any property taxes as as a, a landowner, property owner would normally in the state of, Lu of Louisiana. Instead, they're they're making these payments that are in lieu of taxes mm -hmm. that get filtered, you know, and, and eventually find their way to the parishes, you know, operations and services, which is what they're meant to do in the first place. But the kicker is that they're paying about $200 million less than they would have otherwise if they were just taxed like any other property owner uh, over, over the course of the 30-year agreement. So basically, the argument is that this was not a bona fide uh, sale. This was not a bona fide transfer of property. Greenfield retains all of the advantages and benefits of ownership, but at the same time, they get to enjoy this tax-exempt tax status. Exactly. So, so they're, they're, they're asking Professor to reconsider and put it back on the tax rolls. Is there precedent for this kind of arrangement in other situations like this throughout the river parishes? I wanted to get a better picture of like as, as, as best uh, I could, like a more of a universal view of how common these kinds of mechanisms are. And I spoke with a professor at Loyola who's mentioned in the article and he said that these uh, mechanisms, these structures are not uncommon. You find them. It's a legal way to um, uh, entice, let's say, however you want to uh, phrase it, development. I'm, I'm not sure he went down that road specifically. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of filling the blanks maybe. Yeah. It's, it's not uncommon. And, and this, this one issue that is raised, you know, is a certain central issue that's raised is in, in, in the letter is that there's this right of redemption, which is that Greenfield has the right to take back the property basically at their will. And this professor also said that's not altogether uncommon either. Um, you know, the, it's it's in the the Louisiana Civil Code that the, this redemption clause is is fairly common as well. But to to go back to the argument that the lawyer was making in this case, it, it's that a sale and lease back structure itself may not be uncommon. He he doesn't go down this road, but I, I'm I'm going to kind of you know fill in that blank a little bit. Mm -hmm. But this is not even a sale and lease back because it wasn't a, it wasn't a bona fide sale to begin with. Right. So that's kind of, you know the distinction he's making, and you know that they're um, as I mentioned in, in in the article, they're they're not like directly uh, threatening uh, legal action at this point, like. The assessor has to do X, Y, and Z by what, what, whenever. Otherwise, they're going to file something. But they are saying that you know you have as the assessor legal liability in this case, and you know please discuss this with your legal counsel and please think seriously about reassessing uh, the situation here and classifying this property as taxable. Okay, so as of now, this is this is simply a letter to the tax assessor asking them to look very carefully at this structure of ownership and, and tax liability. 
But as you just said, they're not saying or else. Do you have any sense right. of of what will the does the tax is it incumbent upon the tax assessor to even respond to must they? You know, I I don't. That's a good question. Um, it's it's I'm I'm sure it's largely his discretion at this point. Whether you know whether he responds to what extent he responds, um, you know, and and whether that might inform the trajectory of, of this, hmm. uh, let's say, issue or not. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's a good question, Carol. I I don't think he's under any legal uh, obligation to respond. I mean, these are. You know the the nonprofit is um, founded and comprised of people who are residents in in the parish. But you know, I I, I don't think there's any like legal. I don't think he'd be in any legal trouble by not responding. Mm-hmm. You know, specifically to mm-hmm. that. What a year they're having these twins, especially. <laughs> You you are right about that. They've been to uh, Geneva uh, talking to the the UN about what 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 they would call the Cancer Alley, um, the mm-hmm. industrial corridor between uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Yeah, they've they've been in. I mean, like I said, at multiple lawsuits, and they're doing this. They're engaged intimately in in the Section One Hundred Six review. Uh, process with the core. So yeah, they, they are, you know, they're, they're, I, I would say, I think it's fair to say that they're letting their presence be felt. Yeah. It's a powerful model for our region. All right. It's a great story again. Thank you, Josh. Absolutely. All right. You all have a good weekend. All right, see you Bye guys. Later. Thanks, Carol. Okay. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Joshua Rosenberg. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.